0: Today we'll be asking the question, can comedy affect change? And we'll be examining the issue of physician stereotypes. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and sometimes grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be speaking about stereotypes of different medical specialties. But coming up first, we'll ask the question, can comedy effect change? But before that, Ali, what's going on with you?
1: None of your goddamn business. How about that, Asif? No, I... <laughs> I feel like I'm a uh, same old, same old here, but I'm happy about where the podcast sits and I'm happy about the work I'm doing. I taught a, a comedy class. I'm sure you, uh, you're you well aware. I was teaching for a semester at Queens. I'll teach again in September, but it's a lot. It's a lot, but I'm I'm happy to be off. I'm happy to have my summer to me. Queen's
0: University is a uh, university here in Canada. Some people who go there call it the Harvard from the north, but nobody who does not go there calls
1: it that. So yeah. That's correct. That's correct. Same thing used to happen at McGill University. Harvard of the North. Well, isn't that interesting that we have two Harvards of the North when nobody else regards them as such? People bought those t-shirts, which was really the most. No. That, are you serious? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Canada's Harvard or something like that. It had so Maybe not Harvard of the North, but Canada's Harvard. And that was on a t-shirt that people would wear. This is ridiculous. I mean,
0: also, why are you just? Shouldn't you just be known for who you are, mm-hmm. as opposed to comparing yourself to another university? I don't know. It's it's a bit it's a bit ridiculous. Absolutely. And also, didn't you go to the McGill University, the Harvard of the North? Yeah, but I didn't call it that. Don't, I'm not the one who came up with that saying. What does that have to do with I, it? <laughs> I'm, and I'm also not judging the quality of the applicants who go there by comparing you to them. That's,
1: I'm not doing that. Okay. That's very funny. And I did get a very poor education. I stand by nothing that McGill taught me.
0: We'll discuss whose fault that was. Yes. (laughs) another time. (laughs) Today, I want to talk to you about this question that I've had. You know, can comedy and comedians actually affect change? And I mean like change... In the world with public policy, with politicians, etc.,
1: is that possible? No. Now, moving on to you, Asif. Let's ask you about no. <laughs> you know, the short answer is kind of no. I mean, even you know, I'll take the words of Samantha B. and Sam B. has a show called Full Frontal. If you don't know about it, you definitely should know about it. A great show, and the reason I say you should know about it is because it has withstood some pretty rocky late night waters. You know, in the last few years, there's been almost a dozen shows that have come and have not been able to weather the late night storm like Patriot Act, like the opposition with Jordan Klepper, like Michelle Wolf's show. There were many all of them could not last, they could not keep raiding. Samantha B Bee has been able to. She is this incredible force that continues to have a great demographic and and, and great fans, and she continues to do it in a, a male-dominated late-night landscape. She's, she's killing it. However, all that said, when asked about, you know, what is the ability of comedy to affect change, to take Trump down, she calls her craft, generally speaking, Impotent beyond belief. That is her quote, particularly in the face of the wrecking ball that was, you know, Trump's daily presidency. I, that is, she was talking specifically about Trump, but that's also a very interesting point she makes about comedy in general. You and I have both listened to this podcast called The Revisionist History. And
0: that actually—it's so funny you mentioned that because that's—I was thinking about an episode from Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history podcast. Because in season one, he has this episode called the satire paradox. Right, you've—you've you've heard this one, mm-hmm, right? of course I have. Yeah, and yeah. And so the question is. That he kind of poses in that episode, and I suggest everyone listen to it. I mean, finish this one first, then listen to that one. But are laughter and social protest are they friends or are they foes? That's kind of the the question that he asks, right?
1: Yeah. And when I say, of course I have, I just mean because, you know, comedy is my place of interest, and I was teaching comedy, so I, I listened to it as I was preparing, you know, lessons for my class. But it is a very, very interesting discussion. If you have even, you know, a basic interest in comedy at large in society. I think it's very, very interesting because we all want to believe so badly that comedians, when they humiliate politicians, when they expose the lies that are out there, they can affect change. And as comedians ourselves, we want so desperately to believe that. It's just, it doesn't exist. It it doesn't seem to be the case because Comedy, definitely, you get fans, you get laughter, you get hits, you get likes. But in the end, it turns out more often than not, uh, the vast majority of times, you're preaching to the converted. And it it reminds me of, you know, those protest signs at protest marches. You got some really, really funny signs. You know, I once had a sign, uh, which I was very proud of. It was, we were protesting against the George Bush-led invasion of Iraq, And I had a sign, very simple, it said, Easy Georgie. That's all it said. Easy Georgie. Got a lot of interest at the protest march. People were like, great sign, great sign. Over the years, people's signs have been borderline hilarious. Gay rights marches, people will have, if God hates gays, why are we so cute? You know, people will have the reverend's wife from, from the Simpsons. Won't somebody please think of the children, right? And they're talking about no cuts to education. And they have that woman, that character from the Simpsons there. And sign after sign, you know, I shaved for this. Uh, somebody holding up a sign. My arms are tired. Now you've pissed off my grandma, this kind of stuff. So those signs are very, very funny. And they give us some joy, but they only give us joy, A, if we are in agreement with the protest or if we are at that protest and support that cause. And it's kind of the same thing. And and it's much more problematic. What what Malcolm Gladwell was highlighting was was, uh, the early days of this Archie Bunker phenomenon, basically, because Archie Bunker, if you don't know him, was a character on All in the Family. Award-winning Norman Lear show in the seventies and eighties, a character that would in no way be able to be duplicated today on television. He was an old bigot, basically, and we would see the the headbutting between him. I say headbutting, and his his you know nephew, his son-in-law was named Meathead, but uh, it, the the headbutting of Meathead and Archie Bunker because Meathead played by Rob Reiner, was a much more progressive, liberal-thinking man, and they would constantly come to um, warring words, and you can't talk like that, Archie, you can't say things like this, and that show should have revealed the absurdity of bigotry and discrimination and prejudice. Instead, what happened is liberals loved the show because it was satire. And it was exposing the bigotry. But conservatives also loved the show because they were like, yeah, that's right, Archie. You tell him. You tell your dumb son-in-law who you call Meadhead exactly what it's, you know. And so you had this weird unintended effect of both sides seeing something they loved in the show. And I'm sure when Norman Lear designed the show, that's not what he wanted at all.
0: I totally agree with you, and I thought about the same thing with All in the Family, and then there's also this question, I think more recently, about Saturday Night Live, right? Which is supposed to be this North American satire, I mean, there's a lot of arguments against that, but I think specifically of Tina Fey's portrayal of Sarah Palin, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, Saturday Night Live has come under fire a number of times for this exact same thing, so Sarah Palin... If you're a a liberal and an SNL fan, ah, they're mocking Sarah Palin. This is hysterical. But having Tina Fey play Sarah Palin over and over again, to the point of having Sarah Palin on the show right beside her, wound up humanizing her. Now Sarah Palin's in on the joke. She's not the subject of the mockery anymore. She's in on the joke against herself. And look at her. She can play along. And the same thing could be said of Trump. I think it was 2016 before he was elected, SNL had Trump on and again, humanized him, made him part of the joke. And if we know one thing about Trump, and I'll get to that in a few minutes, he can't take a joke. That's not what he does. But SNL sort of facilitated that.
0: Totally, I agree. And it's interesting. The Satire Paradox podcast episode came out before the elections. That season of that podcast finished before the elections. And then Trump was on, as you say, prior to the election. And I think Lord Michaels has to take a lot of responsibility and the cast for going along with with having Trump. Trump by then had proven himself to be a despicable person. It was it was quite evident. We already knew that having him come on there, it humanized him. It definitely solidified him as being the front runner and the Republican lead. And it, as you said, it humanized him and people. Are like, oh, he's just he's just a funny guy and, and ignoring all the kind of horrific things that he had said and done up to that point. I think it played a big role. Was it the only role? Of course not. I'm not saying that, but I think it played a big role.
1: I think so too. And then you add Jimmy Fallon tussling his hair on The Tonight Show. That was another thing. Like, Jimmy, what are you doing, you moron? That's not helpful.
0: And and listen, you and I love Stephen Colbert and I think we're going to... We may talk about him in a, in a second, but he also had Trump on. People forget this. And if you go back and watch that interview, how toothless it was, this is Colbert. He had transitioned, right? He wasn't doing the Colbert rapport. He was now doing his show on CBS. It was extremely toothless. And and, and I, was, I was actually embarrassed for him. I couldn't believe it. This is the same guy who did the White House correspondence dinner with
1: Bush, very toothless. He was toothless with Trump. Well, Stephen Colbert very interesting case study, because if you want to know somebody who is more embarrassed of Stephen Colbert than you, it's probably Stephen Colbert right because uh, here's the thing: eleven seasons of the Colbert rapport, which people have referred to him widely as just a master of his his craft an absolute comedic genius he would go. Deep, deep in character every night and become like this Republican right-wing stooge, I should say, not Republican. And it was very funny. And people like myself, more liberal, more progressive, loved it. But at the same thing, the same as the Archie Bunker effect, people who are conservatives were like, yeah, I like where Stephen Colbert is coming from on this. There's truth in every joke. So even though he's joking, you know, even if people could think it's satire, they could still be like, but there's truth in every joke. And look what he said. And that's, he's got a good point there and this kind of stuff. It wound up being a show that, again, preaching to the choir. And 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 Stephen Colbert talks about this. When he stopped doing the Colbert Report, it wasn't achieving what he originally wanted it to achieve. The satire was lost on so many people and, in fact, having the opposite effect. Then he starts Stephen Colbert's show. He has Trump on. He has exactly what you would describe, exactly what you described, a toothless interview with him. And then I think sometimes, look. Having some experience with networks and this kind of stuff, sometimes you are, as an employee of a certain network, you are beholden to them and you have to do what's asked of you. And the networks are in the pockets of other people, shareholders and so you don't really, and I feel like Fallon was under that. And eventually, Colbert, so disgusted with himself, and you may have to bleep this out, Asif, but called Trump's mouth a (coughs) for Putin, if you remember that. And the right wing turned against him. And it was like, he suffered the consequences of that comment. But to me, that was a guy who was so upset with himself that he went over and above and insulted Trump in, in a way. And even Trump was like, ah, show should be canceled. It doesn't do, you know, of course, Trump can't take a joke at all. Yeah, I think he went over and beyond. And he was like, I don't care what the, and I, I think he's spoken about that, that this is my show. And there are certain things that I want to say, and I will take responsibility for that. But then, what happened then is like your show might get canceled, and everybody who works for you—you you know, the fifty to a hundred people who who earn a living getting this show to air every night—may be without a job because you did something kind of selfish. So it's a bit of a lose-lose situation for some of these late night late night hosts sometimes.
0: You know, I agree, and I think his right-wing kind of persona kind of fell over time, and then, as you say, he had to kind of find himself with this new persona, which is basically himself, right? But do you think that these right-wing politicians can be
1: affected by this satire? Do you think, are they immune to it? Well, I mean, look, I want to say yes, but there's lately, I mean, I just, just look at Ted Cruz recently. The state of Texas has an unprecedented weather force come through it snow, ice storms, you know, power grids go down, and people are quite literally, without any exaggeration, freezing to death in their homes in parts of Texas. Now's the time. Ted Cruz, you're the senator of Texas. What do you do? It's your your moment. How do you help your people? You go to Mexico. That's what you do. You leave the state. You go on a little vacation just showing your own privilege, your wealth, your oblivion, and your lack of regard for your own people. At that moment, that man should have been humiliated and mocked mercilessly, which he was. He should have felt humiliated. And really, a person with some degree of shame would have probably... Retired in embarrassment, they would have left their post. And the people of the state would have demanded that of him. So, two things happened. Number one, he didn't feel any shame, which is weird. And number two, his feet weren't held to the fire. And I go as far as to say this is a Trump phenomenon. This has always been in place, but this is something Trump has brought to the forefront. This is something he has sort of popularized. Right. And so that's why I was going to
0: ask you about, because you back in October, I think, sent me this article by a journalist named Dan Brooks, who wrote for uh, the New York Times. And I think it was in the New York Times Magazine. And his title of his piece was How President Trump Ruined Political Comedy. So uh, I was
1: curious, is that what you're kind of getting at with regards to how Trump is like the extreme of this? hundred percent. And I, I did send you this in the fall. I thought it was very interesting back then. And I was that was a time where I was hoping and praying that Trump would no longer be part of our uh, global landscape. But also it's interesting because then I, I bookmarked that article so that I could teach about it. And I did make this required reading for my class as well. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very interesting article. It covers a number of different things. But Trump ruining political comedy is not because Trump can't take a joke He says, Dan Brook actually says something very, very interesting, which is that you like him or hate him, he's actually the jokiest president (laughs) that we've ever had. I was like, what is this guy on? But then he broke it down and he said, now his way of joking is very different. You don't see that type of joking, but actually he's got a style that resembles that of a nightclub comic because he goes, he tests material on the road. He presents these, these bits and then these variations on these bits to the, those audiences at rallies. The idea was that, you know, that, that border wall with mexico mm-hmm. it, it came out of that it, like he worked it in like the quote unquote his open mic circuit and then he was like okay this is what works this is what works and he's got those set up and punch rhythms uh, he's like a don rickles dan brooks was saying he's got that little like uh, insult comedian type of stuff this was very interesting to me because years ago trevor noah had said this that 2015, before he was uh, president, Trevor Noah was like, guys, I think this guy could win. And Trevor Noah says everyone in his office was like, oh, Trevor, you you foreigner, you dum-dum, you don't (laughs) know how this country works. That's not how it works here. And, And Trevor Noah goes, you know what? People underestimated populism. He goes, I understand populism because I come from Africa. So many populist leaders, I know that style. I know the way they belittle and dehumanize certain groups. I know the way they they talk. I know the, the orating style of these populist leaders. Like I've seen this since I was a child and I've studied this. And I'm telling you, this guy knows how to work a mic. Whether you think he's a clown or not, I think this guy has a chance. And he didn't want to be an I told you so type of guy, right? But in the end, it was like, look, man, I get it. I totally get it. We've seen this over and over again and he had a a global approach to this it's a very very interesting article I encourage people to to read that even though we're out of it there's a lot of interesting stuff there including the fact which I found most interesting you know he he asks somebody at a taping he's talking to he's at a late-night show and he's talking to a couple of people a producer and a showrunner and he's asking is there anything that doesn't work anymore in comedy he was talking to some comedy central reps basically is there anything that doesn't work in comedy? And one of the the, the people, the rep, says, yeah, sarcasm. And he said, oh, that's very interesting. And the reason that sarcasm doesn't work anymore is because people are so invested emotionally into everything that is happening that if you're sarcastic, you may come off as flippant, you may come off as a little bit callous, and people will have to wonder even for a moment, wait a minute, are you on our side or are you not on our side? Because this is important. So you can't be sarcastic anymore. You have to go right to the audience and go, this is how we feel about this. This is what we're, you know, this is our brand. We are horrified by Trump and anything other than like a straight message can feel like a betrayal to the audience. Comedy, whether it can affect change or not, comedy itself has changed. Yeah. And and
0: that's what I found very interesting about this article by Dan Brooks. He talks about how as you said really the daily show and last week tonight with john oliver are really the two ones left along with samantha b's program the other ones have kind of, kind of fallen by the wayside and i think there's a couple things that he points out one the media doesn't play along with politicians anymore they call them out that used to be john stewart's thing that's why we love the the daily show in the early 2000s right we he would call out stuff that nobody else was calling out now people do it all the time it's, it's constantly on twitter people calling things out so they don't have that ammunition anymore and second of all pointing out hypocrisy as you point out with ted cruz it doesn't work like there's no shame there's no embarrassment so that even pointing it out is it's it's that's become toothless now to use that phrasing we used before for stephen colbert so i think that's tough and and as you said trump was using jokes all the time. Like his Twitter feeds are constant jokes. And what he does is he takes something that was a joke like the border wall and turns it into something real. Right. Or he'll do the
1: opposite. Opposite also, yeah. No, I was just joking. I was just joking. Oh, I'm sorry. We show You show no signs of uh, joke right. delivery whatsoever. Injecting bleach in
0: your veins to, to combat COVID-19. He was serious. And then, no, I was being sarcastic.
1: How could you know? Actually, how do we know? Because it's impossible to tell anymore, right? Yeah. No, exactly. Comedy and change. When we talk about that, what's more interesting to me is how comedy itself has changed. In the 1930s, 1940s, if you talked about sex on stage, you could be jailed, right? Whereas now, sex is my six-year-old walks around the house going, "That's excellent." We're like, okay, he's a dumb dumb. He doesn't know what that means, but he's got the word "sex" on top of his tongue all the time. Uh, he just likes it more than the word "excellent" some for some reason. But if you look at you know Lenny Bruce and how many times he was jailed. I think that is very, very interesting and the things he was jailed for and now what we're able to say. If you look at George Carlin, George Carlin is on the one hand, you know, he had this, this bit called in the 70s he called, called the seven dirty words you can't see on television. We can say almost all of them, I think now. So you can see how society and comedy is changing. But also, George Carlin is a, a really great barometer of how little comedy changes things in society because his sets, many of his routines can be described as prophetic. He saw things happening then. He called them out. He he saw things that were going to happen. He called them out to huge applause in arenas. And yet those things are happening still or happening even more. And we haven't been able to do anything about it. So George Carlin, when you listen to his, his sets, you're like, what? This has been happening since 77 and it's still happening, whatever it might be, the corruption of pro- politicians or the greed of corporations and the complete disregard for the average American or human being when it comes to you know, business decisions and this kind of stuff. You know, another great example that I have to bring up is Dick Gregory. And I, I you probably thought I was going to say Richard Pryor because when you talk about Carlin, you talk about Pryor. Prior changed comedy because of how much he was able to unearth about himself, the raw, painful stuff. And I think people looked at that and were like, oh my God, I got some raw, painful stuff. I never thought I would bring that up on stage, but I, maybe I can talk, you know? But Dick Gregory, you got to understand this guy in the 60s, came up at a time where they were just letting black comedians communicate with white audiences. And I say communicate on purpose because... You couldn't really have a conversation as a comedian with a white audience. No white audience, you know, just around the civil rights time was going to allow black people to tell white people how to feel. That is unheard of. So you had to kind of really what they call shuck and jive as a black comedian. So Dick Gregory was one of, if not the first, one of the first guys to start with like these hacky, what we call Henny Youngman jokes about like, oh, my wife, she's so this and my wife's cooking. Uh, who burns cereal? You know, this is a, uh, Cliff Nesteroff is a comedy historian who talks about this at length. And then after getting them on his side with a couple of wife, my wife jokes and generic jokes, he would start with the politics. He would earn their trust and he would start talking about the political situation in America for a black man. And he was jailed and beaten more than any other comedian. And and Cliff Nesterov talks about this guy. He would cancel dates because he had a date booked. He was going to make some money. And then it'd be like, no, I can't because Martin Luther King has this uh, has this protest march. I got to attend the protest march. And he was canceling a lot of comedy. And, and so when you look up Dick Gregory, which I, I hope everybody will, you will see comedian and political activist is right there because he was almost more an activist than he was a comedian. So that's a good example of...
0: Dick Gregory, George Carlin, etc. But they're changing comedy from within, so they're changing the comedy world. Mm-hmm. What about examples from the comedy world trying to change everything else, change the world around them? Are are there examples
1: of that? It's it's hard for me to think of any, uh, you know, recently. Well, it's interesting. It's hard for you to think of any because when I mentioned two, and it wasn't easy to find them. They're not many, you know. I'm not the best researcher either, perhaps, but there aren't a ton. But there are a few out there that really stick out. And one of them, Asif, has to do with a TV show, an animated show that you've been a massive fan of for 30 years. Yes, I know what you're getting at here. You're talking about The Simpsons, and
0: you're probably getting at the recent- change in, th- in terms of them getting rid of the Apu character. This is exactly it.
1: Now, this was not a comedian from stage who mocked something, but this was a comedian, Hari Kondabolu, somebody who I'm a, a big fan of, who made a, a documentary. It was available on Hulu. I, I assume it still is, called The Problem with Apu. If you're a lover of The Simpsons and you're brown and you hear Harry Kondabolu speak. There's a real conflict. And part of you goes, what's this guy whining about, man? This is Apu. This is all we had. But in The Problem with Apu, he talks about coming at it as a fan, a massive fan. This show influenced him. It's probably part of the reason he's a comedian. It showed him the power of of making people laugh. And it was the first show that made him laugh as a young man. He loves The Simpsons. What he didn't love, what he grew to despise was Apu's character because it was so one-dimensional. You know, at the time of his uh, documentary, he was saying like, you know, 27 years on or whatever it is, Apu is still the same, thank you, come again, uh, the same the, by the many arms of, uh, of, of this Hindu god, may I, this, uh, the same like litter of children, the same, like, why can't these characters develop a little bit? And in this day and age, why is Henka's area? a non-South Asian man with so many South Asian actors and voice actors out there, why is he still voicing this? Like they have to change, something's got to give. And that question that he put out there, that documentary led to some changes and it led to Hank Azaria who was initially resistant, which I totally understand. People were resistant. It's been Hank Azaria's job. He felt he did it well, but even Hank Azaria relented in the end and, and had proper conversations with people who made him understand that, you know, you're doing six voices on the show or something, Hank. Like, you, you know, come on. That's a great example.
0: Yeah, that, that, and that's one that now that you mentioned, I totally agree that he definitely affected some change with that documentary. Any other ones that you can think of?
1: The other one is also something you would know very well. And it also ties to this idea of people getting so attached to these characters and these celebrities. On stage a number of years ago, Hannibal Burris exposed something that was already out there. It was already out there and nobody was talking about it. But he was the match that lit the fire. And he talked about Bill Cosby having drugged and raped numerous women. And you could hear in that set, if you look at that set, there's groans in the audience, even the audience who love Hannibal Buress and the time, I'm sure, because he's a great comedian. They groaned. And he goes, look it up look it up. And what did they do? They did look it up. And so did everybody who watched the set. And then people started saying, why are we giving this guy a pass? What is happening? And from there, this real genuine snowball effect occurred where Cosby was eventually investigated, put on trial and imprisoned. And honestly, it does start with Hannibal Burris. And it wasn't a massive audience; it was a smaller audience, but it just caught fire, right place, right time. Now Hannibal may say wrong place, wrong time. At some points, he might have said that because he was getting death threats. His life was under a ton of fire, ton of scrutiny. People were trying to completely cancel Hannibal Burris. Yeah, I can think of H- H- Hannibal Burris and Harry Kondabolu as being comedians who have affected real change but it is few they're few and far between these uh, these instances
0: the only other one that comes to mind is sasha baron cohen and i remember in the fall of 2020 he was very adamant that Borat to be released prior to the election. He negotiated. He didn't. That's why, as you recall, it was released on Amazon Prime Video. It wasn't released in theaters to a large extent, and because he wanted it available to as many people as possible through streaming to watch it prior to the election. Now, I guess, uh, and those of you who see the movie, you know that there, there, there's a lot of political things that get brought up in that. So, I guess maybe it's hard to know if that affected the election or not. But certainly, that was
1: one of his goals. I Would think it was a goal, but I think if you talk to him too, I I think he would. I don't know if he would call his satire ineffectual, but and we talk about this in another episode. We have an episode where we talk about clown and buffon, and this is this guy's a master, a master of satire and buffonery. But again, what can you do against the shameless? They had Rudy Giuliani removing his pants in a hotel room, made him look like an absolute goofball. And still Rudy Giuliani just sort of bounces back and shakes it off and goes, well, that was weird. huh?" And, and yeah. So what he can do in the end, again, it feels a little bit like preaching to the converted and Sasha Baron Cohen fans are enamored by all of his work as am I and and people who don't care for his satire. I don't know if any of them would have been convinced. All right, Asif, I want to talk to you about something that I learned about many years ago. When I I had a number of friends, one of my childhood buddies was a pre-med student and he hung out with all these other pre-med students, meaning that they did one year of university. These were all a bunch of geniuses. They did one year of university and then went right into uh, medical school. It was a very sort of exclusive program in, in McGill University. And I met a bunch of these guys, the best time of their lives, I would say. In that one year, we we partied a lot and I felt so safe, you know, even though they were pre-med and probably wouldn't have even known how to give me basic CPR, but I just felt great in their arms. And I, over the years, I, I I stayed in touch with a number of them. And one of them, you know, my friend said, you know, one of them was going to be a, a neurosurgeon, a brain surgeon. And, and my buddy says to me, he goes, you know, a lot of people... Think he's arrogant, and I actually didn't. I'd never seen it until until he mentioned it. I was like, really? I don't see that. But yeah, a lot of people think he's arrogant, but that's the exact personality trait you want in your neurosurgeon. You don't want somebody humming and hawing and go, ah, uh, did I leave a glove in there? You right. So I was like, oh, that's very interesting, and that opened my eyes to this whole concept of medical stereotypes. And you and I have had conversations about that. Are there people? who are just naturally designed to be a certain type of doctor? And are there people also in certain practices where you look at them and go, buddy, you have no business here. You really should have been a rheumatologist or something like this, right? So I wanted to get an idea of the landscape of stereotypes in medicine. And also I wanted to ask you, like, you know, which one comes first? Basically, men who own pickup trucks are jerks. But did the pickup come first? Did it make them a jerk? Or did, did they were they jerks and then they bought pickup trucks? So that I want to put that to you in the medical world. So yeah, I mean, these are really good questions. And, and it's something that
0: kind of comes up all the time. I think I've shared with you before some of these videos from this uh, Twitter and TikTok uh, doctor, Dr. Glaucon Flecken. Yeah, he probably has like a half million followers on each of those two social media streams. And uh, we'll, we'll play one now. We'll play one of these videos. And this is basically, he he always, when his videos plays both characters. And this is one of a medical student who's starting a rotation the first day on a neurology rotation. So what I do for a living. And the neurologist is on the phone when the medical student interrupts.
1: Hi, this is Neurology, returning a page. hmm mm. Okay, so just so I understand, you're consulting me because the patient has a brain and you don't understand it. No, 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 that's okay. Uh, not everybody paid attention in med school. That's okay. Yeah. I, I tell you what, I- I'll let you know when I'm coming to see the patient. You can join me and I'll show you what a physical exam looks like. Yeah. Oh. Oh, and if I see you checking reflexes with a stethoscope, I'm going to beat you to death with it. Yeah, okay. All right. Sorry about that. Oh, it's okay. I'm the new med student. Oh, welcome. Well, we got a couple consults to see this morning. Uh, This one is from a doctor who forgot how to take a history. And this one just says uh, MRI is broken. I imagine you connected with that in a very special and unique way. Not a lot of specifically neurology jokes out there. Well, exactly. And so, and I love it. And and what he's doing, some of the stuff
0: he's saying, like, you know, him kind of rolling his eyes that the people don't know how to do an examination, or they just use an MRI instead of examining somebody. I mean... That's what we say every day in neurology. It's it's so hitting the nail on the head in terms of the personality of neurologists. Neurologists are thought of as nerds, they're thought of as people who, unlike the neurosurgeons, we sit and contemplate for hours and, oh, let's think about this, you know, we're not rushing into doing anything, usually, we're, we're, we're thinking and, 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 and hanging back and thinking about things. But there's the idea that we're masters of this neurologic examination, we know how to do all these things, and that we get somewhat annoyed when people don't do that. So he kind of encompasses this in his videos. He has a video for almost every specialty now. They're hilarious and they're so they're so accurate. So then the question is why do 500,000 people who follow him on Twitter or TikTok? Why do they find it all funny? Why do we watch it and go, yeah, "Exactly. You're exactly right." How is that? And and of course this guy's a comedian, you know, he's he's a funny doctor and does comedy as well. And comedy is about seeing the truth, right? I'm sure you would tell me that. It's about seeing the truth and and bringing it up when you may not have noticed it, right?
1: Exactly. Exposing something and uh, looking at it from a different angle, yeah.
0: Let's go through some of these different stereotypes. I think you might find that kind of interesting. So one of the things is uh, internal medicine, right? And internal medicine is something that people don't really kind of know what that is sometimes when I'm saying internal medicine.
1: I, I literally thought it meant inside the building. You practice inside a building internally. And then I was like, and then everyone else is external. They're in field hospitals or something. Yeah, you have to explain stuff like that. I now I know, but only over the last couple of years.
0: Right. So and it depends what in different countries an internal medicine person does different things. But you know, if you're going into the hospital, you're being admitted to the hospital because you have a medical problem that's not diagnosed yet. You don't you don't really know what it is, you may be admitted under an internal medicine who kind of knows all about cardiology, uh, neurology, nephrology, all the different subspecialties. And and they're kind of a generalist of all those specialties. And if you need to see a subspecialist, you kind of go on to the next level. And and all those things, cardiology, nephrology, rheumatology, as you mentioned, they're all subspecialties of internal medicine. So people say internal medicine doctors are kind of like these neurologists. They love thinking and talking more than doing. That's, That's kind of a stereotype people have. Then we have anesthesiologists. These are the guys who put you to sleep prior to surgery. And they're characterized as kind of lazy or chilled or relaxed. And in fact, there's a really great poster, which we'll tweet out from our account, from a scientific conference on education, where they did word clouds for all these different specialties, right? So lazy, chilled is the anesthesiologist. The surgeon, whether it's a neurosurgeon or anyone else, arrogant, precise, skillful,
1: male. Because that's a stereotype. Psychiatrist is weird because front and center on this diagram, which we will share, is talkative, which is the least psychiatric thing I would think because I think they're just good listeners. They're just listening. But this is talkative and chatty. And I think this is maybe coming from the because med- this is stereotypes
0: held by medical students, right? So it may be the psychiatry they've, they've met are, are talkative uh, as opposed to listeners. Then there's general practitioners or family doctors, friendly, uh, kind, but then one of the words boring. I mean, and remember, these are medical student opinions of this. This These are first-year medical students Okay. haven't even experienced a lot of these things. And then there's the pathologist. So in case you don't know what a pathologist does, when you get like a biopsy or a tissue sample, that gets sent to the lab and the pathologist examines it and tells the surgeon, say, the diagnosis that he thinks.
1: I only know pathological liar, (laughs) so I assumed pathologists dealt with liars and helped them stop lying. That That is really, I I didn't know. Okay, all right.
0: But their stereotype, because they're in the lab all the time. They lack social skills. They're introverted. They don't like interacting with humans, you know, that type mm. of thing. Anti-social, and geeky emergency doctors are stressed, intense, busy. We always joke about, you know, if you don't didn't ride your bike to work, then you're not an emergency room doctor. And these <laughs> guys are always active. Oh, what, what are you gonna do this week? We're gonna go uh downhill skiing. What is it when they helicopter you into those downhill skiing? Yeah, skiing, right? And we're gonna do that. Like that, that's the kind of the stereotype of them. For dermatology, people say if you like money but don't like working too hard, dermatology is a field <laughs> for you. That's great. They make the most money, by the way. And a lot of people don't know that. They make yeah. the most money of all physicians. And then the biggest one, the biggest stereotype is orthopedic surgery. Because these guys are known as the jocks, the bros. You're excluding women. I mean, this is a problem. And, and like I said, it's a problem in surgery. It's a problem in all surgical subspecialties. So there's also a really funny... Flowchart, which all which we'll tweet out, which someone named at Fizzy McFizz uh, developed, and we'll we'll tweet that out as well. Where you kind of go down the, a pathway. Do you like people? No. Then go into pathology. Are you a huge nerd? Yes. Go into neurology. What do you think of kids? Uh, they smell. Then you go into something else. I uh, if you love kids for the first, do you like kids for the first two minutes of
1: life? Go into obstetrics. Some of these are are funny to me, even with uh, as little as I know. But also, I think. You know how you have a guidance counselor who says okay based on your personality skills this is what you should go into is there such a thing for medicine because my feeling is if i look at an anesthesiologist they should be chilled the person who's going to put me under before a surgery shouldn't be a neurotic mess i, I that's how i would feel about it right like that should work emergency doctor if they're too chilled if they've smoked smoked a joint in the morning and they're like relax man we'll get to you we'll get to you i don't want that person in the emerge right so are these stereotypes or are these also good traits to have to help serve your job? Right. Job requirements. Yeah. And and that's true. And
0: anesthesiologists, I know, because again, it's a stereotype, but you want someone who's not going to get flustered, as you said. And as we talk about anesthesia, it's an hour of sitting around during a surgery, not doing much. And then when you're waking the patient up and putting them to sleep, it's like, you know, several minutes of pure stress. And you got to be calm and know what you're doing in the best interest of the patient. So you're absolutely right. So it's this interplay, right, between are you a good fit for this specialty or not? As you said, I'm not the uh, intense emergency room, intensive care type personality. That's just not me. I'm the sit back. I like to think about the problems and things like that. And and it's not for me. So partly you need to think about how these specialties may jive with your own personality, but then you also need to be careful, right? You don't wanna start excluding people because, well, I'm not a big athlete, so I'm not gonna go into orthopedic surgery. I mean, that doesn't even make any sense, right? What's the most concerning, I think, is that what you would really want is people to have some self-reflection, see what kind of person they are, experience all the different specialties, and see which one fit their own personality, right? That would be an ideal. But unfortunately what happens is, and we talked about that study with the word clouds, but even when I see students in first year medical schools, they haven't done any rotations. They don't know anything. And they already have these preconceived notions. That's the problem, I think. I had one student tell me she's really interested in the brain and the mind. Obviously that's what I'm interested in. So I said, great, that's good. Maybe you want to do neurology. She's like, I'm thinking about psychiatry as well. I'm like, great, psychiatry would be amazing for you as well. She's like, well... You know, except the problem is, I heard they're not real doctors. I'm like, what are you talking about? A psychiatrist <laughs> isn't a real doctor. Like, and but
1: the question is, they're getting this stuff so early on, right? That's a first year student. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. It reminds me, like when I was in university, we were. It was so basic. It was like, hey, you like to talk a lot. You should be a lawyer. You like to debate, right? You like to really mess with people's emotions. You should be a psychologist. It was all like these basic, basic. We all turned into loser guidance counselors, but nice to know that med students aren't so, uh, aren't so different from the rest of us, at least when, uh, when it starts. But a lot of this that you're talking about hints at something else that you've talked to me about, which I would never have known about, but I think it's like an area of almost specialty of yours. You correct me if I'm wrong, but it's definitely an area of interest, which is this idea of a hidden curriculum, and I would have known nothing about that. So I definitely, I wanted you to talk about that.
0: Right. And so I've I've done some research in this area called the hidden curriculum. And so the way to think about the hidden curriculum, which is really what the propagation of these stereotypes is, it's this hidden curriculum in medicine. So if we take a step back, there's the formal curriculum, which is what's written out, right? You can imagine even in like primary school and secondary school, you have like the curriculum that- What you're learning in uh, the classroom, basically. Exactly. Then there's what we call the informal curriculum, which is still what the medical school, for example, wants you to learn, but it's the on the job training. That's why the last two years of medical school, you're doing your rotations. And then, you know, when I'm walking down the hallway with a student and we're talking about the patient we're going to see, that's me teaching them, right? It may not be in their formal curriculum, but we're talking about it. It's practical,
1: but that's not hidden. There's nothing hidden about that. There's nothing
0: hidden about that. And same with learning from nurses, learning from physiotherapists. Like it's all extremely useful knowledge. But. Then we have the hidden curriculum, and this is a way of thinking, it's what the medical school is teaching you that is not intending to teach you. It's unintended teaching and learning that's going on. So I'll give you an example. So say in the medical school, we have different blocks. So the first month, you learn cardiology about the heart. The next month, you learn neurology about the brain, and the next month is pediatrics, and so on and so forth. At the end of every block, you have an exam, right? You're studying for the exam, and that says whether you passed or not. The last block of the year is on ethics and professional behavior, okay? And then the person who's running that block says, you know, it's just so hard to examine this stuff, so um, it'll just be pass-fail,
1: and it's just whether you attend or not the class or participate. So that sends a message to students about the importance of ethics.
0: Exactly. So even though they're saying, no, 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 everything's important. It's just as important as cardiology. But the hidden message they're saying is, it's not as important. Don't worry about it. And these hidden messages and mixed messages occur all the time in medicine.
1: Enough that you call it a curriculum, basically. That's right. Oh, wow. Okay.
0: And it's thought that the conflict between what you're learning in the classroom and the formal curriculum and this hidden curriculum can cause a lot of stress and can contribute to cynicism and burnout in medical students. So I'll give you a couple more examples. We talk about privacy of patients all the time. Privacy, their their medical chart is private. Everything about this chart, you can't talk about this patient anywhere in public. It's private. Okay, good, okay, they hear that all the time. Then I'm sure, Ali, you have been to an emergency room or you've been visiting somebody in an emergency room, and when you have two patients in an emergency room, what sometimes separates two patients in an emergency room a sheer curtain about one foot <laughs> off the ground. That's right. One foot off the ground, maybe three millimeters. You can hear everything that's going on. You've visited people in the hospital, as have I. Person next door is moaning, complaining, calling the nurse. Uh, you know, they're, they're in pain. And, and you're just there witnessing this whole thing. Why Why are you? I'm not. Even, you're not even a, a, a physician. You're just someone visiting someone in the hospital and you see all this stuff going on. So that, that's an example. And another example is, you know, we teach our medical students, you got to take time with, with the patients. Sit down, listen to what they're saying. How are they feeling about their illness? What are their expectations about the illness? How is it affecting their social interactions? Take some time with them. Then when they get into your clinic, you're like, you took two hours with this one patient. What are you doing? This is a family doctor's office. 15 minutes maximum per patient, one problem per visit. I don't know if your doctor told you that. One problem per visit, make another appointment if you want the second problem talked about. You know, these these are the mixed messages and the hidden curriculum that kind of occurs in medicine. And like I said, these stereotypes are just part of this hidden curriculum.
1: But it's important. Or are you saying that? The hidden curriculum should be erased and it should be taught formally? Like, Are you saying that it should be learned that we say, take your time, but actually it's a real time management issue here so that everybody gets seen? What you don't want to do is you don't want to teach
0: students about an ideal world that does not exist, right? right? And so- the question is, what do you do about the hidden curriculum? And a couple of years ago, I had this paper, a scientific paper come out about the hidden curriculum. There was some press about it in Canada. And uh, a lot of medical schools tried to jump on and say, you know, no, no, we, we've we solved the hidden curriculum. We We've completely solved it, which is insane to think about because I'm talking about medical school, but this happens in public school that like kids go to. It happens in police college. It happens in the army. This hidden curriculum happens in all areas where you're teaching somebody. So saying that you've solved it is, doesn't even make any sense. It's always going to be there. It's always going to be present.
1: Like racism. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <Not> to <laughs> you be know? grim, but yeah, if somebody said we've solved racism, you'd laugh in their face.
0: Exactly. I, I think you're oversimplifying a very complex topic like racism. So that's where I think it's similar. And so the real question is how can we address it, right? And part of it is doing what you had gotten at, which is just be honest with the students and say, hey, you know what? We understand we're telling you to spend time with a family are impatient and really go through everything, but we also understand there's time constraints. Just be honest that this exists. Talk about how these stereotypes exist and how they're not always true. But as you said, maybe it might guide you into a specialty if you're more of an anxious type or more of an intense person, but maybe it won't. Just bring it out into the open. That's probably the best way to, to address it. Another example is and when people apply for residency, they finish medical school and what do they want to apply for? When they write their letters to say, this is the program I want to apply for, they don't say, you know, I really want to go to your program. You're my 10th choice out of 20. I really want to go there. Even though that's clearly, they always say, you're my number one choice. I really want to go here, right? And so in that process of interviewing and, and writing letters, maybe you should ask a question to them and say, how do you feel about being forced to basically lie? right? That may be a good way of addressing it and having these students have some insight into the process. Another method to address it is to look at the evidence, right? So one stereotype about family doctors, which is incorrect, but a stereotype that a lot of students have is the non-smart people in your class, right? The average students, they're the ones who go into family medicine, the really smart ones choose a specialty that's a total stereotype. And then one university in Alberta, Canada, did a study where they actually looked at all the GPAs of people who went into family medicine and specialties. And guess what? The family medicine people were either the same or better than the people who went into specialties in terms of their GPA. So sometimes you just got to provide the evidence against it. So I don't think there's any way to solve it per se. And I think that's that's a very... A simplified way of looking at it. But I do think that there's ways of addressing it.
1: Okay. And the stereotypes as well, they can be harmful, although they can sort of help guide you into a field that's good for your career. They can be harmful because they can be incorrect, as you said, with this first year student who had an incorrect view of what psychiatry is all about, or you know, the views of family doctors. Exactly. And I think just talking
0: to the students about it and about these stereotypes, that's the best way to go about addressing
1: it. All right, you hear that? Communicate, you bums. That's really the lesson of everything, really. Well, that is it for today. We encourage you, as always, to hit us up, link, link to us. If you have experience in medicine, if you have experience in comedy, or interest in either of those fields, and, and something we said today piqued your interest, always happy to hear from you. Also, if you can let people know, it's uh, on. We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and we have a website. You can reach us through right. That's right. It's Dr. V. Comedian
0: at uh, Twitter, Instagram, and our email is drvcomedian at gmail.com. Let us know any feedback you have about the episodes. We'd love to hear from you. And Ali,
1: anything to plug? I'm going to plug us today. I'm going to go rogue and I'm going to say, let's plug ourselves. Please give us five stars. If you enjoyed what we bring to you, that really helps us. Where do they give us five stars again, Asif? Anywhere you get your podcasts,
0: Spotify, Apple Podcasts, a five-star rating and a review is really helpful to us. Please subscribe and follow us on wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great day.
1: We'll see you again soon. See ya.